This morning, we'll be hearing a message on Acts 2, 42-47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Good morning. Obviously, I am not Albert, but like Albert, I have his cup here, water. And unlike Albert, I don't have an iPad to preach from, but I do have uh, the Luddite version of one. So (laughs) Uh, let's open in prayer. Lord, uh, just thank you for this day and for everybody who's here. And just fill us with your spirit today and let us hear whatever words that your spirit has for us. And just bless this time and this church. We ask this in your name. Amen. So a couple of weeks ago, we finished Luke, and Albert had been in Luke for, you know, probably two and a half years going verse by verse, and some weeks just a couple of verses, and so uh, we're taking a little detour from Ruth this week. He started Ruth last week, and we're going to jump up to Acts a little bit, and in Acts 2, and we're just going to do five verses, which is kind of Albert's style, and I'm not entirely sure we'll get through those five verses, so we might just do two or three of them. Acts is the continuation of Luke, really, and for Luke, one is not a a disciple alone, but finds profound personal significance in being one of the people of God who are desiring to be a citizen of God's kingdom, and so they spend a lot of time together, and being a disciple of God for the early Christians is a lot different than what we think it might be. It's a much more radical, kind of all-encompassing life experience, and so for us here, This day and age, a lot of times we just come to church on Sundays and maybe that's our only connection. And that's great. I mean, we come here as a group and we meet on Sundays. And so one of the things I want to talk about today is going to be in these verses where there's a lot of community, but it's not necessarily here. I mean, we learn stuff here. Albert preaches to us here. We worship together here. But we go out in the world and we're alone and we need community. And so here at Regen, we have things called home groups or small groups. And I'm going to be touching on that a little bit today. Acts is this continuation of Luke, really, right? We leave the end of Luke. There's the ascension of Jesus to heaven. And Jesus tells the disciples to go wait to get instruction before they go out into the world to spread the message because, really, they're going to need the right tools to do this, and they're not properly equipped yet. So they're hanging out in an upper room a lot all together, and there's, you know, 12 apostles, and there's 120 of them total. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is one of them, so it's a mixed crowd of men and women. It's not just men. And so they waited in that room, and then on the Feast of the Pentecost, which is 50 days after Jesus' ascension, And by the way, there's great similarities between the Feast of Pentecost and the Pentecost we're talking about here, what's happening. The Feast of the Pentecost is an Old Testament Jewish holiday. might be called Shavuot or something, Shavuot, I'm not quite sure. But Pentecost was the name that Greek Jews gave it. And when Alexander conquered the Mediterranean, he brought the Greek language, he Hellenized everybody, and a lot of the Jewish people lost their language. They did not know Hebrew anymore, so that's when they developed the Greek Bible. And so words like Pentecost stood for Shavuot or Helen, what's the right word? Do you know? 
I thought you corrected me, but. <laughs> oh, Shavuot, right. And so they replaced that with the Greek word Pentecost, and then we use that today as a type of movement in the Christian community. And it's interesting because when Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was Passover week. And so now this is another major Jewish holiday. So there were a lot of religious pilgrims in Jerusalem when Jesus came in. And once again, there's a lot of religious pilgrims in Jerusalem because they were there for this feast, to celebrate the feast. And they go to David's tomb, and that's where they meet. And this is where these people are, they're in the upper room of David's tomb, and this is where they are going to receive the Spirit. And so, much like the Feast of the Pentecost was the birth of Judaism, the giving of the law and all of that, this is going to be the birth of the church. These 120 disciples... They hear a sound of mighty rushing wind, and then they see something that looked like cloven tongues of fire descend upon each of them, and they began to praise God in other languages. So now this is a powerful and dramatic moment where they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and in the excitement they spill out into the streets, and so this is where they come into contact with all of these religious pilgrims, all these uh, other Jewish folks in the street, and, you know, they're sharing their joy, and they're, like, totally freaked out by what happened, and, you know, they're mingling out there. And so to explain it, Peter stands up and he gives this awesome sermon and he showed them what they had experienced had been prophesied for centuries and that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And so that day about 3,000 people became Christians, right? And right there is the birth of the Christian church. I mean, 120 people, you can have a church and that's kind of what we have here. But with 3,000 people, you can really start going and do some things out in the world. And so when you think about a church, though, I mean, what do you, comes to mind? You know, to some, a church is just simply like a building like this where people go for weddings and funerals. I know a lot of people who've never been to church other than for a wedding and a funeral. And until about seven or eight years ago, that was my case. You know, I'm like, hmm, what's that thing all about? And that's what it is for a lot of people. And so back then, you know, they didn't have these sort of things. You know, they just met house to house or in the streets. They'd go to the temple, sit in the porch of Solomon. And which is actually a pretty cool name. And there they would open up their Bible. They didn't really have a Bible then. They had the Old Testament. I don't even think they were using parchment paper yet. It was a scroll they were probably scrolling out, right? And so there's no New Testament. It's only Old Testament. And through the Old Testament, they're divining who Jesus is and what his message was and how he's prophesied and how his teachings are biblically consistent and apply to them in their lives. Uh, something's going on in Rome this week, I guess, coming up, and they're going to pick a new pope. You know, so there's these hundreds or thousands of bishops there, right? And they're going to wear these crazy conical hats, and who knows what they're even talking about. And so the church is this mysterious place to a lot of people, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or Jewish or Muslim, you know, however you end up worshiping. When I became a Christian, I started getting more interested in what things were all about when, you know, I was reading about stories of Jesus up in Philippi, you know, Caesarea's Philippi. Uh, hanging out with disciples and just talking about what's going on with Jesus, what his mission is, going around healing people, saving people, just fellowshipping with people. And he asked the disciples there, who do you say that I am? So Jesus had been around for a while, you know, saying and doing amazing things, but the disciples, they're still not entirely clear who he is or what his mission is. They know he's this rabbi and a prophet, but they're not entirely clear what the whole story is yet. So Jesus asked that all-important question that each of us someday is going to have to answer. And he says, who do you think I am? And Peter stood up and said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And, you know, Son of a living God is Old Testament verbiage for being 
God himself. That's used all over the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, you're right, Peter. And upon that statement of truth, the truth about who I am, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he puts Peter in charge of all people, you know. And so this stubborn guy who takes a lot to get through to him, but that stubbornness is going to be, come in handy when he is in charge of the church, when he, in Jerusalem he builds the church, when it has to be steadfast and solid and a foundation that can uh, withstand attack. Jesus uses a word, a Greek word, to describe church, and that's ecclesia, and it means the called out ones. And so in Greek culture, people use the word ecclesia all the time just to kind of call it like a group of like-minded people doing things together. So if you were into knitting... You know, you'd be in a knitting ecclesia kind of thing. If you were uh, into ironing, and believe it or not, I love to iron. I can out-iron anybody in here. You'd have an ironing ecclesia. <laughs> Lessons after church in the cafe. And so ecclesia, the church, the called-out ones. And Jesus used this word to speak about a new gathering of people. And this new gathering of people would be centered around the fact that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said it was his church. And he would be the builder. And simple enough, Jesus would build this church. And so in Acts 2, 42 through 47, it's just the blueprint of what that church is going to be. And it's actually a pretty simple blueprint. There's going to be fellowship. There's going to be prayer. There's going to be doctrine. And there's going to be breaking of bread. And that essentially is what the church is, those four things. And so that's what we come here to do on Sundays. And so those are the healthy ingredients a church is going to have. They're going to be strong and in those areas. And any church later on would have to come and meet the blueprint of what Jesus has laid out here. So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. And that's verse 42. And so Luke basically outlines four ways that the church started living out their life together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were in fellowship. They engaged in the breaking of bread together, and they prayed. These things are all pretty basic, but don't need a lot of explanation. I mean, there's some debate around the idea of breaking bread, whether that means communion or if it means sitting around and eating together, but it probably means both, right? So they're always in fellowship, in communion with each other, so that's both of those things. Another thing we need to keep in mind that all of these people are devout Jews, right? The early Christians are all Jewish, and they don't see themselves as being really separate from being Jewish at this point. You know, it's just the Messiah has come, and all the Jewish people are waiting for the Messiah, and these are the folks who've recognized that. So it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. All of these things here, they already had these four components, already something in their lives. These were rituals. These were systems that they were part of. So they had the prayer. They had the breaking of the bread. They had the fellowship. They had the doctrine already going together. And so I don't really make light of it, but it's like that's how rooted they were already. And so Luke is showing us what the early church looked like, and it's what it's going to look like. And so these are the marks of a church, of a redeemed people of God. I'm going to jump up to 44. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. And that's it. The apostles' doctrine, fellowship and the breaking of bread in the prayers and meeting the needs in generosity. And so let's take a look at these elements. The first one on the list is the apostles' doctrine. And doctrine, I don't know, it can be kind of a scary word, like, okay, this is what you have to do. But doctrine translated from Greek into English just means teaching. So this is a teaching church, and they were a learning church. 
And you see it when they gather for church, right? I mean, they're studying the scriptures devoutly. You know, a lot of churches, like, you go into church and you check your brain at the door and you just listen and you're not being challenged about anything. But, you know, at this church here, Albert puts in so much time and he wants us to be so doctrinally correct about things that we don't check our brains at the door. I mean, we don't decapitate ourselves. We come here to learn and to dig deep into the scriptures. And in Deuteronomy 6, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And so, because we don't decapitate ourselves, we're going to use that muscle when we come here, the brain. You know, and it's an important muscle to use. And uh, you don't have to take that proverbial blind leap into the dark. You can learn about the God you serve. And you don't have to guess what God's like. We have a Bible that tells us what God's like. And so the scriptures we go through, the way Albert teaches us, or when we're in our home groups and we're breaking it down, is showing us who and what God is like and what he expects from us. And, you know, you don't always get the answers you want out of that. It's kind of like, oh, really? I'm not doing that right? Or i got to change something in my life because that's what God's telling me to do? So it's not always a comfortable proposition studying the scriptures, you know, because you're being challenged when you're studying the scriptures, to grow spiritually. And so you need to have solid Bible truth to know God and how he desires to be worshipped. And so good doctrine is important because bad doctrine leads to bad religion. And in that way, you can be manipulated in all sorts of ways. You know, false teachers of doctrine will come out and seek to lead you awry. There's pastors who will twist the scriptures in order to take your money from you. There are... All sorts of ways to twist religion to separate you from what God has in store for you. And, you know, like with the disciples originally up in the room when they're doing the Last Supper, for them that's a Seder meal, those guys, because it's Passover. So Jesus is switching that over. And here at Regen, we observe a lot of the old Jewish traditions because they're consistent through this. When Helen was announcing today, we are doing a, a Seder meal on Good Friday, so it would be awesome if you could come out and see where that tradition came from, and we do a Christian version, but come out and join us, it'd be great. And the people teaching it are people who grew up Jewish, who converted, so they're Messianic Jews, and they have a lot of experience in this, and I think it'll be a really good insight into how our early community lived, and how they worshiped together, and how they fellowshiped together, and how they broke bread together. So uh, I highly encourage you to come out and join us for that. But You have the disciples in the room for the Last Supper, and they're all totally stressed out. They're on the run. They know something's up. And Jesus has them calm, and he is sharing teaching with them, doctrine. But somewhere in here, Judas has gone awry. His doctrine is way off. And so this is what happens when you separate yourself from true doctrine. Judas has been tempted. He's not rooted strong enough into his beliefs. And so he goes awry, and then he, you know does what Judas does for a few coins, silver coins. And so what they would do, the disciples and then the apostles, they would just take their scriptures and they would read it and they would devour it and they would expound on it and see how it tied into our lives and how we could apply it. And they were like really steadfast in this and it was unwavering and it was great for the church because it made it a strong and healthy and growing church. And so when Peter delivered his sermon, there were people ready to feed into them. And so, you know, this church is not a perfect church in the beginning. And you see that there's problems within it because in Acts 5 is when church discipline gets first mentioned. So some things must be going on where discipline in the church services or the worship services had to be employed. But it isn't just great for the church, this doctrine. It's also great for the individual. And in Joshua 1.8, 
It states, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And so, like, how are we doing spiritually? Are we successful? Are we spiritually prosperous? By reading the word and devouring it and meditating on it, that's where steadfastness comes in to the commitment of applying it to our lives. And David writes in Psalms that how blessed is the man who doesn't live his life by the rest of the world does, but in God's word meditated day and night, he will be like a tree, well watered, enduring the hard, dry times of life. As you read, meditate, and apply the scripture to your life, you're going to experience the abundant life that Jesus has talked about, and he has promised that. And so that's why we study it here, and that's why we take so much time to study all the scriptures. And Albert puts in a lot of time, and that's why it takes two and a half years to go through the book of Luke, so we can all be part of that process. And we don't do, you know, like dramas on stage necessarily, and we don't offer political opinion, and uh, we just simply teach the Bible and how to interpret the Bible and then apply that to our lives, and then take that gospel message of love out into the world. And that's enough of a political statement of its own. We don't have to back it up with you know, our secular words of things. We need to stick to the truth of what the gospel is. And so God's word is a shield. The Bible also says it's a hiding place. It's a light-revealing direction. It brings hope, builds faith, it breaks addictions, it heals, it teaches, it guides and it gives life. I just met with somebody a couple weeks ago. My best friend, Bruce, he doesn't go here, he goes to another church, but he was a raging alcoholic and a cocaine addict and uh, really a retrobate in any kind of way. He was a coke dealer too, but uh, one day in, in northern Maine he was at a service, a Pentecostal service, and the Spirit came over him. He gave his life up to the Lord, and he quit dealing drugs that moment and never drank another drop of alcohol or had a desire to do coke again, you know. And so it's just amazing how God can work these miraculous miracles within you at that moment. So the Bible, I mean, it heals, it teaches, it guides, and it gives life. So Bruce knew nothing about the Bible at that moment, but there was some Bible teacher there who was able to present the word in the way and invite the Spirit in in a way that just cured him of those addictions at that point. And so Jesus said in the Gospel of John, your word is truth meaning God's word. Now, if that's the case, it kind of makes sense that we read it, and it makes sense that we come together and we read it and learn it. And it's not just that we learn it, it's that we do it, and that is where the powers in these words are going to lie, like not just how it changes our lives, but how we can share it with others to change their lives. You know, so Brian Fuentes, every Sunday morning, he heads up the breakfast ministry over there for the homeless who come in, and he's been doing that for quite a while. I saw Brian in here somewhere, but... I've misplaced him. At any rate, I mean, it's a great ministry, and he's living out the change that happened in his life. He had a profound conversion experience himself, but he didn't just keep it to himself. He goes and ministers to people that can relate to that kind of experience. And he's consistent in it, and he's steadfast in it, and he's reliable in it, and he is there all the time, and he's built relationships with people that take a long time to build relationships with, who are very wary of coming into a church because they've had experiences where they're not welcome at a church. And so that's how we have to go out and apply the word when we receive it and we learn it in the way that God gives us all some sort of gifts to share it, to go out there. And sometimes you just got to put a foot in front of one another and go walking and apply it somehow. And you'll find out if it's your gift or not, or God will just give you a gift. So 
I, I suppose I could go out there and teach people how to iron, you know, since that's a gift. But, you know, that's a little bit more private. Actually, this is kind of funny. I had a job where I had to wear a start shirt every day of the week and every Sunday night for four or five hours. And I was so meticulous about hiring the shirts. It's like they would take me almost an hour a shirt. So it's five shirts. So every Sunday night I'd rent movies and have them on and I'd iron these shirts. And like one of my mates from Australia came to visit and he stayed for a couple of weeks and he watched all of this. And he's like, you know, you can go across the street and for 99 cents a shirt, they'll take care of that for you. And so I started to do that, and for a while I didn't know what to do with myself on Sunday nights. But it really, I mean, it was awesomely freed up a lot of time in my life. So, <laughs> And so the scripture allowed to shape them, mold them, and give them vision and perspective. But they weren't just steadfast in doctrine, but also in fellowship. And fellowship in addition to being a learning church, and this is a learning church and a teaching church, and and people are attracted to this church who have, uh, I don't know, there's like eight or nine of us here have gone to seminary or are in seminary, so, you know, there's something that we like about how Albert teaches and how he gets into the Word and we connect to it. Aside from those two things, being a learning and a teaching church, they were also a loving church, and they had fellowship. And so there's a Greek word for that, and that's koinonia, and it doesn't mean just hanging out in the cafe necessarily afterwards and having a coffee. Though I highly encourage everybody to go join in some koinonia over there afterwards and, uh, and talk to some people and meet new people. But it means more than hanging out. It means sharing your life. It means sharing what the Lord has been showing you. It means helping another experience the Lord. It means being there for them. And it means meeting their needs as well. And it's a word that speaks, you know, it's a popular word now, but of community. And so it is beyond just the fellowship hour or the half hour or going out to lunch. I mean, it's learning how to be in genuine community with each other and to share your lives. But not just to share your life, but to be willing to have somebody share their life with you. It's not just about you receiving something by being around people that can support you, but you need to learn how to be supportive of other people. When we come here on Sundays to church, we receive. Albert teaches. Justin plays awesome music. They make great coffee. But, like, what are we getting out of that that's going to make us what we've received to go out those doors into that world, which is a mess, and share with them and give to them? And so that's what this is about here, is we come in to receive so then we can go out and give. And that's what fellowship is about, or koinonia, is because once we're in together, we can build each other up and do things like that. So it's about being, you know, hanging out, being open, being real with each other, uh, being authentic. That's, you know, a big word, but being really genuine and authentic with each other. And down at verse 46, it talks about where they met. And where they met was like home to home to home. They met in houses, right? I talked about it, but there were no churches. These guys had temples, but they're no longer welcome in the synagogues. I mean, they could still go to the uh, temple courts and, and all of that. But they would have fellowship from house to house. And so they were doing like the home group thing, the small group thing. And they would hook up at home because you can really accomplish some amazing and cool things in a home setting that you can't accomplish here. You know, they're informal, they're casual, they're not pretentious, and it's a time to build relationships and connect with people in a real authentic way. And so, like, in my Christian journey, you know, I shared my testimony a while back, but, I mean, I had a moment in a church where things changed, but really my journey was in a home group. And so over a year and a half period of time, the people in that group took me and they nurtured me and they cared for me and they taught me doctrine 
and they challenged me to change my life. I didn't like the doctrine a lot of times. It's like it wasn't quite meshing with how I wanted to live my life. But anyhow, that's what home groups do for you, you know. In a loving but challenging environment, your life can change. The secular culture tends to lean in a very different direction than the kingdom of God. The world promotes individualism and privacy and taking care of yourself, right? One of the marks of making the kingdom of God a reality is to oppose these things in our own life and to live out a way that involves community, sharing, and caring for those who can't care for themselves. And so when we're all alone out there and we're doing our thing and, you know, we're working hard and there's all sorts of images from media all over the place saying, hey, buy this and do that, you know, there's conspicuous consumption and there's greed and there's like, okay, this is what I need and I want to fulfill my desires now. That's the world out there. That's what's pushed out there. And so when we come in here, we're trying to do something different. We're trying to be part of the kingdom of God. And what that promotes is sharing and meeting people's needs that aren't your own needs. And so it talks in here about selling all of your goods and sharing with everybody. I mean, it goes on in Acts a little bit later to say, you don't have to give up everything you have. But basically, if you see a need and you have an ability to meet that need, it's incumbent upon you to help that person meet that need. Otherwise, I mean, what are we living out as a Christian? Jesus said to love your neighbor as you'd love yourself. And so if you're going to do that, that means if you're into greed and conspicuous consumption and just it's all about you, well, that's how you love yourself. That's how you need to love somebody else. Like shower that kind of material wealth on them then, which I think that would be a quick lesson in huh, what's going on with my life because I don't want to give up all those things. Jesus calls us out repeatedly in the scriptures about this. And so there are two different ways of living life. And here at Regen, we really encourage you to be in some sort of small group dynamic. I mean, you need to be able to come here on Sunday, have corporate worship, but also go to the small groups because what you need is that community and that fellowship. You know, when Paul was on the road to Damascus and he had his experience where he struck down and his life changed right there on the spot... He wasn't sure what had happened. He needed to be healed. And a small group of people took him into a house for a few days. And there they taught him doctrine. They loved on him. They prayed for him. And they prepared him for his transition in life, which was he was the hunter. He was going to Damascus to actually get those people, take them back to Jerusalem, and have them killed. And so what's happened in this moment of his conversion is so profound. Now, these people who are the hunted, who are terrified of Paul because he has this reputation as a a Christian killer, now they have to break all their boundaries and uh, whatever feelings they have about this guy, right? And they have to reach out to him, and they have to love him, and they have to heal him, and they have to share with him, and then they have to send him on his way as one of them. And what an intense experience that that must have been all around for everybody. And so Paul needed a small group. He needed a home group the guy who knows more about the Bible than anybody else, really. So, you know, the book of Acts, it says it's the Acts of the Apostles, right? Really, that's just a small portion of the book. This is where Paul gets introduced in chapter 9, and he goes out and he takes everything to the Gentile world. And so Acts is really about Paul, and Paul becomes the central figure of the New Testament at this point in time. And so that's what Paul's being prepared for in this small group. And so you never know what you're prepared for. You never know what your gifts are. And in a community like that, people can pray for you. They can discern what's going on. They can have wisdom and insight. 
and they can prepare you for your next step. And so here at Regen, I mean, we really encourage people to be part of groups. We have a lot of really good groups. And if you want some information about it, you can talk to me afterwards or shoot us an email. Or, you know, one of those Connect cards in the back, boom, just fill that box in and, and put a little info down, and, and we'll get a hold of you about that. But, you know, there are a lot of us start thinking, okay, I don't really need that koinonia thing. You know, I'm strong, I'm sturdy, I'm steadfast. I can handle things all on my own. But, you know, like a giant redwood tree, if it's all on its own there, right, the roots are so shallow that a wind can easily topple it down. And so that's why you see redwood trees and groves where their shallow roots interlock and intertwine with each other and make it this really strong community that nothing can take down. There are no winds. There are no fires. There's nothing that can take down a grove of redwood trees. And so... That's why they don't stand alone. And if they do, they topple. And that's what we're like. If we stand alone in our faith, we're easily swayed. If our doctrine isn't strong and we're standing alone, we're easily pushed over here into worldly things that we shouldn't be pushed into. With Christians, those who seek to grow strong and straight, they're going to fail if they're not interlocked with other believers. And that's what we want to do with home groups. Without fellowship, you're going to be out of balance. The book of Hebrews says, "...forsake not the gathering of yourselves together." And so if you don't have a group of people to fellowship with or to be in community with or you're too shy to even ask, just let us know and we can help hook you up with people so that you can grow uh, strong and tall with your roots interlocked with others. And so the early church, it's steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, it's steadfast in fellowship, and it's also steadfast in the breaking of the bread. And what's happening across and through the church with the first believers is really like a remarkable thing. So when Jesus is making his journey to Jerusalem, you know, he loves to sit and have a meal with people. And it's not really ever the rabbi from town, but he just reaches out to whoever, right? He crosses all sorts of cultural and social boundaries. And at this point in time, culturally and socially, you're not supposed to be sharing meals with people who are beneath you or above you socially or culturally or politically. And so Jesus just breaks that entire paradigm up, right? He just shatters it and he has prostitutes, he has the tax collector, he has whoever he wants to sit and, and, and join in with him. And so he makes this not an exclusive situation, but an inclusive situation, right? He invites in all of those who on the outside look like they don't belong with the inside church at this point. He reaches across to them, and he makes no distinctions about who's at the table with them. And so there are no distinctions. And so eating together... Like that, it's a mark of unity and solidarity and deep friendship and a visible sign that social barriers, which once plagued people, have broken down. And there they are, breaking bread together almost every day and facing into the cultural expectations of who they should eat with or not. So, and that's what the church should be like, right? There should be no social barriers or cultural barriers about who comes in here. I mean, it should be a white-collar church and a blue-collar church and a no-collar church and, you know, a white church and a black church and an Asian church. I mean, a church should be able to do all of those things in one place. I mean, a lot of times we tend to want to be with our own kind. I mean, I get that. But a church should have no social barriers at those doors when you come in or when they come to the front, they shouldn't see that's, huh, I don't think I'm going to fit in here. I, I can't go into that place. So... That's what Jesus did. He just really broke down all these different kind of dynamics. And so the night before Jesus went to the cross, he broke the bread, and he said to do this in memory of me. And he did it so you don't forget what he did to show his love. 
And communion is a snapshot of the love and the grace of God, that God would become a man and go and allow himself to be put to death on the cross, to allow himself to have nails driven into his hands and feet, to allow himself to have his back beaten with the Roman whip, to be beaten, bruised, humiliated, and executed with the cruelest and most painful torture device really ever invented by man. I mean, this is a pretty spectacular torture device, a crucifixion, you know. The beating you take... And then the humiliation of carrying that cross all the way to where you're going and then being hammered in on it and being stabbed or spears thrown in you to slowly let you bleed to death also. This wasn't just experienced by Jesus and the two guys on the cross next to him. This is what the Romans did wherever they went. And so it was an example like, do not counter us. Do not be in rebellion against us. So you'd come into a town, you're walking down the road, there'd be all sorts of bodies up on crucifixes, just as a reminder of Roman power and might, and not to uh, contradict that. And nobody wanted to go through that because it was so terrifying, and Jesus willingly did that for us. And that's what communion is. It's in memory of how he sacrificed himself. And so here we have communion. We break and we eat of the bread to remember his broken body. We drink of the cup to remember his shed blood. And Jesus said to do it often. And why is that? I mean, because we really have a tendency to forget. Because we go out there when we leave here and we mess up and we fail and we fall and we let people down. And, you know, our children hate us. Our spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends hate us because we do things just to constantly let people down to fail. And... By doing this in his memory, we are brought into communion with him, and hopefully what happens is a continual transformation is happening with us, a regeneration, a change in our lives that grows and grows, so we fall less and less. And so we do that by coming here, we do that by being in small groups, we do that by sharing the gospel and having to live up to a certain standard, because once we go out and say, this is who we are, And this is who I want to be recognized as, as a citizen of the kingdom of God. There are certain responsibilities that come with that. And when you let people know that's who you are, who aren't believers, they have certain expectations of you then. The worst part of failing people is when you fail people who have expectations of you and they're not believers and you're not living what you preach to people or what you state you stand for. And so we continually go through this. So the doctrine, the teaching takes root and changes our lives. We're going to do communion shortly, but I wanted to talk about prayer just briefly because that was another part of the church. They prayed, man. They were steadfast in prayer. They prayed all the time. This is what they did. I love that Jewish tradition of prayer, you know, and a lot of times it was vocal. Like one person would just be praying to God, even in an argument with God, or she'd be in an argument with God, and that was the dialogue, but they were in communication, and some sort of return message was going to be given, but the apostles... And the early church, they all prayed together all the time. And people here have the gift of prayer. And probably as a church, don't pray together as much as we should. And we try to get traction on that. But in the home groups, we pray. I know that. I know there's people here who will just stop and pray for somebody. And that's awesome when that happens. Another thing about that is we all need prayer. And if you're hurting and you need some sort of prayer, you know, you can... Also fill something out on this card and say you need prayer and we can contact you and pray with you or just let us know about that. And then, you know, later today, actually, during communion and after the service, Eric Lowe back there, uh, he's sitting on a sofa. He'll be dressed in black, black hair, tall, lean, unlike me. He will be able to pray with you. He went through the Stephen Ministry program for a year, so he has good insight and discernment to what's going on with you, you know, and uh, he's a great person to pray with. And I'll be sitting down here, and you can come pray with me, too.
The great thing about prayer is, you know, you hear amazing stories about prayer being answered. And I met with somebody this last week, and he's a great guy, and he told me amazing stories about prayer being answered. And, you know, it's like for me it was good to hear that because it helps build my faith. And really, that's a lot of what prayer is, you know. It is God can just answer anything. He can give it the go-ahead. But part of the purpose of answering prayer is to build our faith in God. And when we have stronger faith then we expect more from God in terms of answering amazing prayers. And so we start off with little prayers, you know. It's like, I have five parking tickets I can't pray for. Can you help me out with that? Hook me up, God, or something. But then we matriculate up the ladder, and our faith grows, and all of a sudden we're praying for miraculous healings of people, and that happens. And so there's no limit to what God can do. In the early church, there was no limit to what they prayed for, and amazing things happened to that church. And so that's the model here in these chapters. It's a simple concept. I mean, it's just those four things, but it changed the world. It turned it upside down. It was simple but powerful. And this is the time of the service where we kind of shift gears to another type of worship. Here at Regen, we do communion every week, and it's in remembrance of the Lord and what he sacrificed for us. And it's a time that we can confront ourselves, too, and see where we're hurting in our hearts where we have fallen and let God down and let others down. It's a time to recognize that we have been created new in God and in Jesus. And we have this identity that is separate from the identity of the world, that God has created something new within us, and that the shame that we've felt, the fears that we've had, the judgment we feel, those are outside thoughts, that we're judged by God only. Our self-esteem, our self-worth, all of that is judged by God only. That by allowing others to judge us, we're giving them power that only God has. And so this is a time we can recognize that, God, you have power over us. And that you don't want to judge us, but you can, but you love us. And you want the best for us. And in that new creation, in that new identity, we come together as a family to worship We come together as a family to pray. We come together as a family to fellowship. We come together as a family to share a meal. And this is sharing a meal today. This is the breaking of bread. This is something that is the first tradition of our church, really, is the breaking of bread. And this is what Jesus did that night in that room with the disciples. And he invited them to partake in remembrance of him. And so here at Regen, we ask that you be a Christian to partake. And if you want to have a new identity, a new creation in God, I'm going to be over here. You can come pray with me, and we'll see where you're at. But we ask you not to partake unless you are a believer. And then if you are a believer, we ask you to pray before you take so that relationships you have that are out of balance and that need to be healed, you pray for that and that you make those relationships right. Because this isn't just a ritual. It's in remembrance of something that transforms us into something new. And so if we have these strongholds of sin in our life, we have relationships that are uh, out of whack, out of balance. You're harboring hatred or unforgiveness towards somebody. Somebody's harboring something towards you. You need to... Go address that with that person and make it right and allow God to enter into that healing and pray for God to heal because God will heal anything. 
Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for the generosity that allows of people, that allow us to uh, have this place to come and worship, Father God. We're so grateful that we can come here to a safe place and to uh, study your word and to pray together and to fellowship together and to break bread together and to worship you by singing praises to you, Lord. As we come during this time, let us just acknowledge that you are our maker, our creator, our savior, and that we're just so grateful for this. And uh, let us experience some sort of transformation today, Lord, that uh, we can take out and share with others as you have shared with us. And we ask this in your name. Amen.